You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women Podcast. This is episode number 278. I'm your host, Noel Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a certified personal trainer. I'm so happy you're here with me and that we get to spend some quality time together. We're going to talk about a topic that affects so many women and men today, including my husband, and that is the root cause of chronic diseases, specifically thyroid disorders. We have talked a lot about chronic disease on this podcast, including Hashimoto's. We actually did an episode all about healing Hashimoto's holistically with um, Dr. Isabella Wentz all the way back on episode number 283. Um, I think that's an awesome place to start. I will link to it in the show notes. But since that episode, there's actually been a lot of development in chronic disease and thyroid disorders, specifically around exploring root causes with um, functional testing and testing that looks at everything from, you know, gut infections to hormones to nutrition deficiencies. So we're going to be talking about all of that today with Ryan, who is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. This is his specialty, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to dive into all of this more. Um, before I introduce Ryan, I've been getting a ton of questions about magnesium. Um, this has been a huge topic for us on this show. I feel like we've talked, we literally, somehow Steph and I ha recommend magnesium in every answer um, because of its impact that it has on things like sleep and chronic pain and anxiety. And it's really important to discuss this, this mineral for me because over two thirds of people are deficient in magnesium. This is, has a lot to do with soil degradation. and um, But what's incredibly important to me, and especially when considering women's health, is that magnesium is crucial for supporting the stress response. So in other words, stress can really deplete magnesium, as can things like drinking coffee and even pregnancy. So women are much more prone to magnesium deficiency. And then as a final hit, only 30 to 40% of dietary magnesium consumed is actually absorbed in the body. So magnesium is one of the few supplements that um, I recommend for just about everyone, and not all supplements are created equal. In fact, different types of magnesium have different benefits. I know, I'm sorry, it's confusing. And then your body, it can actually benefit from re receiving a variety of different types of magnesium. Um, I personally use Bioptimizers, Magnesium Breakthrough, all of you guys in the Facebook group, our Well-Fed Women Holistic Facebook group, you've heard me mention this a lot. Um, and right now it is back in stock. I know I have um, talked about it on the show specifically before. And when I did, it wasn't in stock. Um, I think it was just there was a lot of demand and the recent supply chain issues, it's just made it hard to get. But they've actually set aside stock specifically for us this time, which is great. Um, magnesium Breakthrough contains seven different types of magnesium, all in highly absorbable forms, including magnesium L3 and 8, which can um, pass the blood-brain barrier and help with cognitive function. It's the form that Stephanie is a huge fan of. Um, 
So go to magnesi sorry, mag breakthrough. So mag breakthrough.com slash well fed. There um you can there'll be like packages that are at a discount, but then you can also use the code WellFed10 on top of that to get an additional 10% off those bundled packages, which ends up being something like 40% off. Um, They've also completely revamped their checkout process. It's much friendlier and easier. So again, that link is magbreakthrough, M-A-G, breakthrough.com slash WellFed, and use the coupon code WellFed10 to save up to 40% off select packages. To be honest, I, I mean, I've taken so many different kinds of magnesium, and this is the first one that has actually provided noticeable improvements. So I'm a fan. Now let me introduce... Ryan of the Mindful Nutrivore. Ryan is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, clinical advisor for the medical director program at FDN, and a certified autoimmune protocol coach with a passion for uncovering hidden stressors that contribute to thyroid disease. He's incredibly passionate about shifting the dialogue about chronic disease towards a holistic functional approach. Um, Ryan provides a completely different perspective for us on chronic illness. He has a lot of expertise in cutting-edge functional lab work, including the Dutch test, uh, the GI map test, and of course, thyroid testing, and even MRT food sensitivity testing, and all of that can be so confusing. So instead of focusing on all the ins and outs of thyroid disease as a whole, we're really going to unpack root causes today, including the things that you might not think about, like mold toxicity. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful introduction. I'm really happy. (laughs) (laughs) You are very welcome. Um, I I don't have no idea how we haven't crossed paths before. We were actually introduced through a listener, um, which I'm so grateful for because I've been really wanting to talk about testing in depth, specifically when it comes to chronic illnesses and and then additionally mold toxicity and you are that. So I'm I'm thrilled and, and so thankful to the woman who um, introduced us. Uh, y- you, as I've been reading, have a really powerful story that involves visiting more than 40 health professionals um, and then finding out you had a TSH of 150. Is that is that right? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times people have thought to try to correct me and say, wait, you mean like a 1.5, right? Or you got you got the decimal place wrong? <laughs> uh, because, you know, just for, for your listeners, the, the optimal range for TSH, we're looking at roughly between, you know, about 0.5 to 2 or 0.5 to 2.5. The that TSH number goes the more indicative it is of having symptoms of hypothyroidism. So when I was first tested for my thyroid function, yeah, my TSH was actually above 150. The doctor at the time explained that the lab couldn't detect any numbers higher than that. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So in theory, um, it could have been higher than that. And 
literally an example of being off the charts. Wow. So talk to me a little bit about that, because getting a diagnosis can be incredibly difficult for people. So what was the process of you having to go through like 40 practitioners and why were you unable to find a diagnosis? Like it seems like this thyroid disease is so hard for people to actually like this is what you're like, you know, their their symptoms are often written off. That's very true. And oftentimes people are misdiagnosed as having depression or chronic fatigue or other kinds of health issues when in fact the common root cause might actually be thyroid dysfunction. So it's it's kind of maddening and, and really disheartening to see. And we know that roughly 14 million Americans are diagnosed with Hashimoto's, but I can't help but wonder how many tens of thousands there are out there that are walking around undiagnosed and are having these common red flags of depression, fatigue, constipation, cold intolerance, hair loss, and you know some of these other common symptoms that go hand in hand with having a slowed down thyroid function. In, in my own case, you know, it it was, um, you know, I often have tried to look back and think of why it took me so long to get a diagnosis, and and part of that I think is because. Within the conventional medical realm, it's not really seen as something that men deal with that often. Roughly speaking, it's about seven times more common in in women. But again, you know, you have to wonder how many men are just maybe reluctant to seek medical attention and to to have some blood work done to look at what's going on with their health. And so, in my journey to uncovering what was actually going on with my health. As you mentioned, it took me about more than 10 years, and I had visited over 40 doctors. That's not an exaggeration. And not one doctor, until actually discovering the issue, had ever suggested running a comprehensive thyroid panel or even a TSH marker. That, that had never been brought up to me. Running, uh, you know, looking at thyroid health as a contributing factor to my symptoms had, had never been considered or, or been even introduced. What um, symptoms were you experiencing? Mainly chronic fatigue and brain fog, which started even in high school, but really started to to reach a a peak in college and and continue to get progressively worse. There was a point at which I had to set three alarms to wake myself up in the morning. And in my mind, I just thought, you know, I'm a college student. I, I was also working two jobs and just kind of burning the candle at both ends. And so I just sort of attributed it to to really pushing myself really hard. But in hindsight, that was not normal that I had to set three alarms to wake myself up. So in addition to the chronic fatigue, I was also dealing with a lot of brain fog and depression and really, really chronic allergies, like debilitating allergies to the point where I couldn't get through a single day without having to take antihistamines and prednisone and inhalers and steroid medications, like the whole sort of uh, menagerie of pharmaceuticals. Um, and I sit here today before you, um, and, and, uh, and I can confidently say that I haven't uh, even touched any of those things probably in four or five years. Wow. So what was the, what kind of, just out of curiosity, what was the doctor that ended up actually suggesting thyroid testing? That was a, that's a great question. And he was a traditionally trained medical doctor, but he was also licensed in traditional 
Chinese medicine. So it did take someone with a bit of a different kind of background and training. And when I sat down with him, I literally begged him to help me. <laughs> I was I was pretty desperate at that point, and I just felt like I wasn't being listened to. You know, it's so common to visit a doctor and only be given seven or minutes of time, and you know they're staring at their clipboard the whole time, right? So, in visiting this this sort of unconventional yet conventional doctor, <laughs> I, I basically laid it all out to him and said. I know I'm not crazy. I know intuitively that something is going wrong, you know, physiologically underneath the hood that just hasn't been identified yet. And he ran a whole bunch of blood work and he ran some food allergy and sensitivity testing and and all that kind of good stuff and including a thyroid panel. And I remember getting a call from him and he explained to me that I had Hashimoto's. And that this was a condition in which the immune system, in a sense, is is attacking the thyroid gland and causing the function of the thyroid as a result to slow down. And this was sort of bittersweet for me because on the one hand, it was a huge weight off of my shoulders to finally have an answer, um, but at the same time, you know, kind of a bit confusing because... I had never even, the last time I had heard about a thyroid was in my high school anatomy course. And, uh, you know, I, I had really little to no understanding as to what the thyroid was or what its role was in the body. So as they say, you know, mother is the, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey of, of taking my health into my own hands and, and starting to embark on this healing journey. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned TSH of 150. Hashimoto's, uh, give me a quick overview. When we're talking about the thyroid, what are the thyroid disorders that people can experience and then how are they related Right. So many people are diagnosed with hypothyroidism, but don't realize that there's an autoimmune component, which is unfortunate because at least 95% of hypothyroidism is caused by Hashimoto's. But the unfortunately, the standard of care from a conventional perspective is that the running the thyroid antibodies are somewhat irrelevant because it won't necessarily change the course of treatment from from again from a conventional perspective right so the the conventional approach is just to give somebody some synthroid or you know synthetic thyroid hormone and like i was be told that you know there's there's nothing you can do about this um you know once this process starts it's out of your hands and you might as well just you know just kind of um, move on with your life and 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 you're going to have to be on this medication for the rest of your life and you know again there's nothing you can do about it so i say that all because in most cases the majority of the time hypothyroidism is synonymous with hashimotos and there's a lot of confusion out there in regards to that issue but they're not really two separate issues the, the hypothyroidism is being caused by the, the autoimmune process or the, the immune system causing physical destruction to the thyroid tissue, which then makes the thyroid more inefficient at producing thyroid hormone, right? So then uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum of that, you have hyperthyroidism, 
which is where rather than not producing enough thyroid hormone, your thyroid is producing too much. And that can also have a common association with a different form of autoimmunity called Graves' disease, which again is, is, a, is an attack on a, a different types of antibodies on, on the thyroid gland, but um, instead what's, what's resulting is a, is a subsequent rise in production of thyroid hormone. I, I find it interesting because a lot of people don't get that proper diagnosis of Hashimoto's. Um, and in the cases where somebody is just diagnosed with hypothyroidism, you know, like you said, it's not really, people are just told, well, it doesn't matter either way. Um, and so talk to me a little bit about maybe the differences and how you would go about treating Hashimoto's versus just simply hypothyroidism and why that distinction is really important. So earlier in the call, you had mentioned Isabella Wentz, and she's a bit of a personal hero of mine, and I really attribute her to actually getting me into this field. And that was when I, I discovered her book on Hashimoto's. And in that book, she introduces this concept from the researcher Alessio Fasano, and, and this idea of a three-legged stool or of, of an autoimmune condition being like a three-legged stool. And what that model says is that there are three requirements for developing an autoimmune condition. The first being a genetic predisposition, which we can't really do much about, right? Those are just kind of the cards that we were dealt. The second and third, though, we have a lot of power over because these are environmental or epigenetic factors. So that, that second factor is, a, is a, an environmental trigger, right? So that can range, you know, that, that can be a pretty broad topic. It can include gut infections, heavy metals, mold toxins, emotional trauma. It can, it can encompass a lot of different things. And then the third is leaky gut or intestinal permeability, which is thought to be actually a, a prerequisite for developing an autoimmune condition. So the reason that I'm laying all this out is because that model of understanding autoimmunity shows us that there's a lot of hope in, in helping us to manage autoimmune conditions in that, again, although we can't really do much about the genetic predisposition aspect of it, we can use functional lab work to identify some of these stressors on the body and start kind of working through them. And we can also reverse leaky gut. We can heal and seal the gut lining and slow down that inflammatory cascade that's leading to the, the autoimmune condition. So in summary, to, to answer your question why that distinction is important is because in my experience, in my own health journey, and in working with clients, is that it's absolutely not true that you, that you can't slow down or manage an autoimmune condition with diet and lifestyle. Um, let, let's just talk about like getting the proper diagnosis very quickly when it comes to thyroid testing. What are the most important numbers to check and how do we actually know our numbers show signs of healthy thyroid production or not? Because um, 
I would love to get your opinion on like the mail-in test kits that we're seeing a lot more now. Um, obviously, this is great because people now can get testing on their own. They can just go online and order a, a little home test kit. But oftentimes, and in my experience, I'd love to hear your your experience with this. You get the the information back, and it doesn't necessarily alert you to what I would consider to be functional ranges. It's still based on the conventional ranges. So maybe just give a little bit of insight before we jump into further testing about thyroid numbers and then what, how, how would you recommend somebody get proper testing or how, how would somebody go about making sure that they get proper testing done? So yeah, this is a huge problem within the world of, of diagnosing or identifying thyroid conditions because you'll you'll go to the doctor and the doctor will run TSH and and there's a couple problems with that. Um, one is that thyroid stimulating hormone, which is TSH, is actually a pituitary marker. So but on its own, it really does not give you a complete picture of what's going on with thyroid function unless you're running a complete comprehensive thyroid panel and, and I'll get into that in just a moment. But TSH all on its own, it doesn't really tell you much because even if TSH is right within the smack dab of the optimal or even conventional range, that doesn't necessarily tell you if you're producing enough thyroid hormone. Um, even though in theory, those, those two markers should be in sync, they aren't always. The other problem with running TSH only uh, and from a conventional perspective is that from that conventional model of looking at TSH, it, the, the reference range is much, much wider. And so let's say your TSH is a 3 or a 4 or a 5. Um, for a, from a conventional perspective, you might be told that everything looks fine. right? And, and this is something people are, millions of people are told every day. And clients come to me all the time and said, you know, I, oh yeah, I ran a thyroid panel about a year ago. My TSH was around a 4 and 4.0, and my doctor told me that, that that looked fine and everything looked fine, right? Um, so the problem is that if we're blindly just treating the paper and looking at those conventional ranges, we might ignore the fact that that individual is coming to us with symptoms of depression and chronic fatigue and weight gain and hair loss and, and constipation and on and on and on. When in fact that could be driven by a thyroid issue, and they just happen to be slightly, uh, you know, they just happen to be within that conventional range, and so they get passed over. So where the functional approach to interpreting lab results differs quite differently from the conventional approach is that we're looking at much tighter lab ranges, and the reason for that is because we want to have optimal health. We don't want to just get by. Right, So these conventional ranges more or less are established based on populations of hundreds of thousands of people that are otherwise unwell. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to lump myself in with that population. I want to have optimal health, right? So whereas the conventional range for TSH might be between about 0.5 and 5, you know, give or take, somewhere around there, you'll see some, some differences. But from a functional perspective, I'm liking to see things around 0.5 to 2 or 0.5 to 2.5, with around a 1.5 being the sweet spot, right? So if someone's 
TSH were to be above a 2 or a 2.5, they might be trending towards having hypothyroidism, in which case we can be proactive, maybe even help them clean up around the edges with diet and lifestyle. Um, they, might, they might not even need th thyroid medication per se if we can catch that early on. And now to, to get into some of the other uh, thyroid, um, you know, I had mentioned a moment ago looking at a comprehensive thyroid panel, right? So I'll go ahead and just kind of spell that out just because I think it's so helpful. And in my opinion, if you're, if you're not, if your lab is not including all of these values, then you're not going to get a full picture. And in my opinion, you should fire your endocrinologist and, and work with someone that will run a full comprehensive thyroid panel for you. So what you really need to look at ideally is that TSH marker. Then we also need to see the free available bioavailable thyroid hormones that are being produced by the thyroid. So those are going to be free T3 and free T4. Right? If we're looking at the total T3 and total T4, a percentage of that is going to be bound to a transport protein, and that doesn't tell you how much is actually available to be used by your cells. In addition to the thyroid hormones, we also want to look at thyroid peroxidase or TPO antibodies. We want to look at thyroid thyroglobulin antibodies, which is TGAB. And those two markers are going to be indicators of an autoimmune process against the thyroid. So ideally, I like to see those both below a 10, if not if, as close to zero as possible. Anything above a 10, you know, you're starting to get into early stage Hashimoto's territory. Then lastly, we have our reverse T3, which is kind of like the opposite of free T3. So I often make this analogy that if free T3 is like the accelerator pedal for our metabolism, reverse T3 is like the brake pedal. So if you're only looking at free T3, okay, that might look like it's optimal. But if your reverse T3 is really high and your body is pumping on the brakes, then it's blocking the metabolic potential or action of that free T3. And that's why you still might have all those symptoms of hypothyroidism, even though your TSH looks fine and your free T3 and, and free T4 looks fine. So uh, I realize that this can sound all pretty complicated to explain, but it also does stress the importance of to, to sort of a, a answer one of the other questions you had about some of these at-home tests. I really don't, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I really think it's important to be working with a practitioner, you know, a functionally minded practitioner to help you make sense of those lab values. Also, if you come across elevated thyroid antibodies um, and you're running that on your own, you know, it's not necessarily going to help you to understand what the next steps are because now we're talking about going deeper into understanding, okay, why, why is this autoimmune process happening to begin with? What are some of my underlying stressors or triggers that might be leading to a dysregulated immune system, leaky gut, and so forth? Speaking of, okay, so you know, you know, you, okay, we, so we, we have those numbers. We know there is some sort of autoimmune condition. Right now, we're really focusing on Hashimoto's. You know, where do you, where do you start with testing or where do you start with, with a, a functional approach to healing an autoimmune condition? Because there can be so many different root causes. 
And I'm wondering if you like have like some sort of foundational approach to healing where you prioritize certain actions and or tests and then do further testing if certain things are revealed or symptoms aren't resolving. So while there can be certain themes or commonalities between people with Hashimoto's, I do find more and more I do this work that it does take a really deep sort of analytical bio individualized approach. So it's, it is, it, it, that does make it hard to be sort of prescriptive and say, oh, if you have Hashimoto's, all you have to do is go on an AIP diet and run a gut test and get rid of your H. pylori, right? So all the, don't get me wrong, all those things can be tremendously helpful. But the, the moral of the story is that when you're dealing with an autoimmune condition, it can be multifactorial. And it's often sort of what I would call a death by a thousand cuts. So it's very tempting to say, that we can point to very specific triggers, and those are going to be the same for everybody. I, I wish that was the case. It would make my job a lot easier. <laughs> um, the truth of the matter is it's usually a combination of nutrient deficiencies, gut pathogens, dysbiosis, leaky gut, infections like Epstein-Barr virus, for example, you know, uh, uh, yeast and fungal overgrowth and mold, um, various forms of toxins like whether that's heavy metals or BPA or glyphosate. Um, and, you know, so th these are all things that, you know, you need to work on sort of digging at and uncovering in, in order to find your unique set of root stressors. But I can guarantee you, you're going to find something. If you're dealing with Hashimoto's, you know, you, once you dig long enough, you're going to find something uh, at a deeper level, at a deeper level, right, that, that might be kind of instigating that immune dysregulation. So I often say that thyroid dysfunction in itself, if we kind of take this one step further, thyroid dysfunction and Hashimoto's in itself, I would consider to be a symptom. And looking at it through that lens, Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism is kind of like just the canary in the coal mine. It's, it's a, an intelligent sign from your body to tell you to slow down and heal and repair. And that's something is wrong underneath the hood. So in other words, the, the Hashimoto's itself might actually be just like the check engine light on your body. And from an evolutionary perspective, it actually kind of makes sense that the body would use the thyroid, which is more or less the master regula regulator for our entire metabolism, and, and use the thyroid to, to slow down the body to kind of force us to hibernate and heal and repair, right? So um, in that sense, you know, we, we often kind of think of this analogy of the, the immune system betraying us and turning against us. And, you know, what, why is this happening to me, right? But I, I like to think of it as more of a protective mechanism, that the immune system is trying to protect us from a threat or an invader. And and it's trying to help us to try to give us a, a sign for we need to listen to those signs and symptoms almost as though like we're receiving a text message from our body. Like, hey, like we need to, we need to do something about this and, you know, we need to take a look at, you know, re-examining our diet and lifestyle and some of those contributing stressors. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about some of the tests that you do most often, um, because we have talked a lot about on here the GI MAP test and the Dutch test, and I think that's going to have 
be very applicable when we start to answer some people's questions. So how do those two tests reveal some underlying root causes that may be triggering autoimmune disease? And I love your analogy of like, it's the check engine light. Hashimoto's or an autoimmune disease diagnosis is a check engine light. It's not necessarily like, oh, you have a disease and now we need to treat that disease. It's, huh, something's going on underneath. And I feel like, you know, with people, they just don't know where to start, especially, you know, people aren't mechanics. We don't know how to, <laughs> you know, you pop the hood and you're like, what? Like, where do I even start? Um, check the engine, like, you know. So um, talk to me about maybe the, the few tests that you find that you do most often and what they end up revealing. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So, so first, I'd like to just spend a moment talking about how my approach might differ slightly from a, even a functional medicine doctor or naturopath. And that is that I'm not, necess- I'm not using the functional labs to diagnose or treat anything. I'm actually using them to guide dietary and lifestyle principles and, and supplement protocols and so forth, right? So I kind of start with this, with this principle that diagnoses are, are really sort of superficial. And what we really aim to do is to identify hidden stress in the body and with that information, we can restore the body back to normal function. So along those lines, I I really love Chris Kresser's definition of disease, which is that disease is a mismatch between our biology and genetics and the modern environment. So I sort of often joke that over 100 years ago that functional practitioners wouldn't have had a job because most of us were eating out of our own backyard and we were getting more sunlight and had more community and we didn't have all these toxins and heavy metals in our drinking water and like it's really kind of like an uphill battle to maintain optimal health in the modern age and you know I'm not saying all this to scare people or, or make people afraid to to go outdoors or anything but um the the world has seen a, a radical change and shift in our in our food supply, in our diet, in our lifestyle, and the way we work. So a lot of what I do with clients is kind of coaching them how to sort of replicate some of those ancestral principles in 2020 and, you know, how we navigate that. And a lot of that starts with nutrient density and optimizing sleep and movement and and of stress reduction, right? So a lot of those foundational principles, I think, can do a lot of the heavy lifting. Don't get me wrong; I'm just as big of a of a lab geek and lab nerd as as the rest of them, and I love geeking out on biochemical pathways and that sort of thing. But I I think that there's just so much you can do from a foundational perspective um, before you even really start digging into looking at all the lab work. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that being said, the, the labs that I'm most commonly running on most clients that come in the door would be the GI map, the Dutch, the HTMA. I really love organic acid testing from Great Plains. That's one I'll often run. I'll often do a full blood chemistry workup that will include a full thyroid panel and also include a, a complete blood cell count, a CBC, um, a metabolic panel or a CMP you know, looking at um, iron status, B12, vitamin D, C-reactive protein, you know, a lot of those kind of basic biomarkers just kind of to start off with as initial clues. Mm. Now, if if some of those labs might point us towards 
other kinds of stress or dysfunction in the body, I might be able to see some kind of clues like reading in between the lines, then that might lead me to sort of add some other things in like looking at, say, like a mycotoxin panel or looking at food sensitivities. Um, so you know, there's, a diff- there's a bunch of different ways that I'll customize a certain approach, but those ones that I mentioned were, are sort of like my core lab workup. How much of your day is spent in front of a computer screen or looking at your phone or watching TV? All of those screens emit blue light and studies show our constant exposure to blue light through electronic devices has a negative impact on our circadian rhythms, sleep, anxiety, headaches, and even eye strain. Blue Blocks was created to fix these problems and block out the blue light with evidence-backed high-quality lenses. I've become so passionate about light optimization recently and filtering out computer light and blue light entirely after the sun sets. I wasn't doing anything about this until about a year ago, and I was experiencing eye strain and weird migraines and also unexplained wired and tiredness, at, especially at night. And now I wear the Blue Blocks computer filter glasses anytime I'm looking at screens and Blue Blocks sleep lenses at night, and I haven't experienced symptoms since. Blue Blocks was created because they saw the need for a product that was exactly in line with peer-reviewed academic literature, which I so appreciate. There are a lot of cheaply made lenses out there that don't actually block all of the blue and green light. Don't waste your money on that. Go to blueblocks.com slash wellfed and use the code wellfed, W-E-L-L-F-E-D, for 15% off. Their frames are gorgeous. It's a health investment that everybody needs to be considering, especially given the recent shifts to people working more from home in front of the computer all day. Um, They can also turn almost any pair of glasses into custom blue blockers. They simply take your existing glasses and fit them with their their lenses. Again, that's Blue Blocks. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X dot com slash wellfed and use the code wellfed for 15% off and free shipping worldwide. Let's talk about the GI map, the Dutch and the organic acids. What does the GI map even stand for and how is it like, what can somebody expect it to tell you? Um, and why might that be like when you talk about, OK, you would shift your diet and your supplement protocol according to what you're seeing on a test like that. Um, maybe just shed some light on that and how things might shift based on what you would see from that test. So the GI map is a DNA PCR test. And when I fir- when I first started practicing as an FDN, the GI map hadn't quite come on the scene yet. So I was still running some of the old school stool analysis testing that was relying on microscopy and culturing, which which introduces a lot of room for, for human error, right? Because you're essentially having a human technician look under a microscope at your stool sample and trying to identify some of these pathogens with, with the naked eye or trying to culture some of these pathogens or organisms in a petri dish so when the gi map first came out i remember watching a webinar with dr dan kalish and he he said that uh 
the the GI map was like a smartphone and all the other stool tests before it were like old rotary phones. <laughs> so if that just gives you kind of an image of, yeah. of the sort of difference, right, of like the technology between the two. So DNA PCR testing is actually looking for traces of DNA to actually match. And they use a form of amplification of that DNA to match the the sort of signature or thumbprint, if you will, of of a certain of, of a given pathogen that might be present in your in your stool sample. The ones that I'll most commonly see with Hashimoto's would be H. pylori, which is a which is a, a bacterial infection that resides in the stomach. I'll often see parasites like Blastocystis hominis or Entamoeba. Uh, or um, let me think of some other ones. Uh, Diantamoeba fragilis is another one I'll see quite a bit. Um, oh, oh yeah, that one, that one, yeah. Oh yeah, oh, <laughs> right. Uh, you guys know that, right? <laughs> right, that's just common conversation. <laughs> Welcome to my everyday life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Candida, you know, is pretty common to see, right? And then just general dysbiosis, like overgrowth of of bacterial strains, like. Klebsiella or Prevotella or Fusobacterium. There's a whole bunch of different ones, right? Generally speaking, when we see someone that's immunocompromised and we're seeing signs of intestinal permeability, leaky gut, autoimmunity, what's going on is that these pathogens have a tendency to drive dysregulated gut function, leaky gut, endotoxemia, um, a lot, basically a, a leaky and inflamed gut environment. Right. So imagine you drive to the bad part of a neighborhood and you see a house that's all boarded up and all the vagrants start moving in. Right. That's essentially kind of what's happened to your gut. So not only do we have to evict the vagrants out of that that home, but we also then have to start doing some rehab to the house itself. Right. So we have to start putting in windows and in new sheetrock and carpeting. Right. And that, that would be sort of the equivalent of of a gut repair protocol. So probiotics, prebiotics, um, short chain fatty acids, um, things like L-glutamine and bone broth, all things that can help to help build and, and uh, repair a, a new and healthy gut lining. And once you've started that process and you have, and you've stopped or slowed down the process of macromolecules and bacteria and toxins leaking through the, the gut mucosal barrier into your bloodstream, then you can basically start to calm down that the, the immune system's response and, and have it, you know, slow down its attack on the thyroid or, or whatever tissue might be in question, you know, depending on the autoimmune condition. That was so helpful. Um, that visual was great too. I'm a I'm a sucker for a good visual um, because it just brings it to light. Because it's hard to picture like the inside of your body. You know, it's like we could talk about the gut all the time, but who's actually seen their own gut firsthand? Nobody. So. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 weird. You know, like we're yeah. we're I'll often kind of say too. We're like kind of a human donut. If you imagine from the mouth down to the esophagus, the stomach, the intestines, and all the way. Or down the other end, right? Yeah, it's one long hole. It's one long hollow tube, yeah. uh, and it's weird to think that our health problems can be can be like within that hollow space. Yeah, uh, we call the gut. Yeah, talk to me about the Dutch test. I know it takes hormones and what like it. Sorry, it, it reveals what's going on. With, 
go, going on with a variety of hormones, including cortisol. Why is that test um, a little bit different than other hormonal tests? Because I know you can go to a conventional um, doctor and ask for your hormones to be tested, and they're likely going to take a like a blood test. So what? why is the Dutch test different? And what is it? Is it cortisol that you're really looking at to see if that, you know, some sort of dysregulation might be causing other issues, a cascade of other issues? That's an awesome question. And so the way that the Dutch test differs from running cortisol. So let's talk about cortisol for a second. <laughs> so for those who are listening and aren't familiar with cortisol, it is your body's main stress hormone and it is produced in the adrenal glands. So every time that you are proverbially being chased by a bear or a or a mountain lion, uh, your adrenals will start pumping out cortisol and adrenaline. Now, Going back to that evolutionary perspective or that kind of that definition of disease being a mismatch between our genes and the modern environment, the, the interesting thing about cortisol from a modern perspective is that, you know, the body doesn't necessarily know the difference between being chased by a tiger or a mountain lion and being stuck in traffic or being reprimanded by your boss and, and being chased by a mountain lion. Right? It still activates that, that same sympathetic fight-or-flight system in our body. So we have to take that into consideration when we're talking about cortisol and, and the stress response in the, in the fact that things like poor diet and emotional trauma and infections and toxins in the body are all producing physiological stress. It's a really important point, right? Producing that same kind of uh, fight-or-flight response. And that's what the Dutch test is really great at measuring. Um, and it can measure your free and total cortisol, and that's where the Dutch really shines and, and is why, in my opinion, is, is the gold standard for hormone testing. If you're measuring cortisol through the serum or through, the, uh, or through saliva, um, usually you're only looking at free cortisol. And the Dutch test is a urine test. And when you're running a urine sample, you get to look at free cortisol and total cortisol. And it's really important to get both perspectives because free total, uh, sorry, free cortisol represents the amount of a bioavailable cortisol that your body is actually utilizing, whereas the total cortisol represents how much demand there is for cortisol, meaning you know, how much production of cortisol, your adrenals are actually pumping out. So I don't want to get too into the weeds with this because it can't, where it gets kind of tricky is sometimes you can have low free cortisol and high total cortisol or vice versa. Um, and so they can be out of sync with each other. And depending on what kind of pattern your cortisol is, is fitting, that can give us different clues or insights into what's going on with your health. So organic, you also mentioned organic acids. I mm -hmm. actually, uh, this is, is, are doctors aware of, of that test? Like if, if you were to go to a conventional doctor and say, can I have an organic acids test? Would they know what you were saying? Uh, <laughs> my, my bet is on no. Okay. <laughs> I've seen exceptions to that for sure. I have seen some conventional doctors. Uh, I, I've had clients come to me and say, Hey, my doctor ran this organic acid test, but they, they kind of rushed through the interpretation and 
not really sure what it meant. And, you know, can, can you kind of walk through, through this with me? Um, usually though, when, when I do see those tests being run, it's usually from like a functional medicine doctor is more to understand what those are. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what does that testing show and how might that play into just some autoimmune issues? Because I'm assuming you would be able to tell nutrition, nutrient deficiencies from that test. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I really love running the oat or the organic acid test alongside the GI map is like my favorite combination because they complement each other very well. And in my experience, where the the oat really shines is where the GI map is is maybe a bit weaker. And so, for example, this is a probably something I see on a weekly basis. I'm not really sure, just in my clinical experience, I, I'm just not convinced that stool testing is really that great at detect, detecting yeast and fungal overgrowth. And that's where the organic acid test really shines. And so if you pair those two together, on the GI map, you might see H. pylori and parasites and, and some other things. And then on the oat test, you might see a lot of signs of fungal yeast and mold overgrowth, and that would give you a very comprehensive picture. So that's where I think the organic acid test, it, where, where its strength lies, is looking at things like aspergillus overgrowth and penicillium overgrowth and black mold. And that testing technology is a little different. We're actually looking not directly for the pathogen itself. We're looking at the metabolites that they produce. So I almost, the the way that I, the analogy that I use for the oat test is that it's like an emissions test, like for your car. You're actually looking at like exhaust products that are showing up in your urine when the engine isn't running efficiently, right? You're going to be like, if your engine isn't running right, you're going to fail your emissions test because you're going to have all these toxins and particulate matter in the exhaust, right? Um, so that's what we're looking at when we're measuring the Dutch test, uh, sorry, the organic acid test, are these urinary metabolites um, of various different pathogens, at least for that section of the oat test. So the oat is really great at picking up yeast, fungal, mold overgrowth, also really great at detecting Clostridia difficile or, or C. diff infections. Um and it's a very comprehensive test. There are, I think, I think it's 76 markers in total on the oat test. So it also gives us insights into oxalate issues, into mitochondrial dysfunction, into neurotransmitter imbalances. And then there are a handful of nutritional markers on there for B12, B6, B5, glutathione, and a handful of others. So it, it's a very comprehensive test that gives you insights into just about every functional area of health in the body. You mentioned mold toxicity in there. By the way, thank you for the um, analogies. I actually didn't even understand that that's what an emissions test was for the car. <laughs> well, I don't drive very much. We have one car and my husband's really my husband. So <laughs> that was, I was like, oh, that's what an emissions test is. Um, anyway, so, so about mold toxicity, you, you mentioned that and that being something that you can detect with an organic acids test. How might one know that they have, that mold 
is an issue for them. Um, you know, what are the tests? Or is there a specific mold test that someone should should get? What are the symptoms? And then how do you go about like figuring out where that mold is? This is the hardest thing for me because there's so many um, pillars to kind of <laughs> eradicating the mold. Mold is a deep topic that I, I never expected to learn so much about, but I kind of had to by default because years ago I was living in a really, really moldy house in the South that was making me terribly sick. And I'm actually convinced that it was one of my top triggers for Hashimoto's because I was actually diagnosed with, with Hashimoto's when I was living in that house. And unfortunately, it was only years later that I had discovered that it was a mold issue. Now, for years, uh, so I can also tell you that it was an older house, and the South is a, you know, many parts of the South are considered to be a subtropical climate. So, you know, you're having downpours every afternoon, just like you, you know, you would in Florida, for example, like in the summer. And so the house, I believe it was built in the 40s, 30s or 40s. And, you know, every time I would leave the house and walk back in, I would smell a very strong, musty smell, but suspected, oh, it's, it's just an old house. That's just, it kind of smells like grandma's basement. It's just a, just a musty old house, right? Um, that musty smell is mold, period, right? So if you smell that smell and it's, whether that's in the main part of your house, the crawl space, the attic, the basement, wherever, you might have a problem, uh, especially if you're dealing with chronic fatigue and migraines and allergy issues are a big one, right? That, that was actually what was driving a lot of my sinus and congestion and allergy issues for so many years was it actually happened to be mold exposure. And not to go down that tangent, but that was I had several sinus surgeries and, and no no doctor had ever suggested that I might be being exposed to mold on an ongoing basis. So the thing about full-blown mold illness is that it's an inflammatory condition. It's also known as chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And that was a term coined by Dr. Richie Shoemaker because what he observed in his mold illness patients was that mold illness was a multi-system, multi-symptom illness, meaning that uh, a sort of hallmark trait of dealing with mold issues is that these tend to be individuals that are dealing with a dozen or more symptoms that all seem to be unrelated, right? So you might have someone that has light sensitivity, and migraines, and they, they're waking up in the middle of the night to pee, right? They've got hormone dysregulation. They've got repeated infections, and they're constantly getting sick with colds, right? Because their immune system is, is suppressed um, and not functioning optimally. They might have an autoimmune condition. They might have chronic pain uh, or fibromyalgia. And, and there's sort of like a laundry list of symptoms that can go along with it. But the, the, the fact remains that those dealing with full-blown mold illness might fit that profile of someone that's got this huge laundry list of symptoms, right? It's kind of like a red flag for mold illness because what happens is that the mold can colonize your system when you're breathing it in. It could also colonize in your sinuses. And then once that mold kind of takes a hold in your system, it starts producing mycotoxins, which are kind of like these chemical bullets that the mold produces. And the mycotoxins are massively inflammatory. 
not just your run-of-the-mill inflammation, like just kind of off-the-charts level of inflammation that you can actually measure through certain inflammatory markers in the blood work. So mold can make people really, really sick. Um, and if, you know, if you're listening and some of these symptoms sounds like you and you think you might smell a musty sm smell in your house or that you have visible black mold in the bathroom or, or in another area of your house, the testing that I would recommend is called the ERMI test. And that was, that test was developed by the EPA and ERMI is an acronym, E-R-M-I for environmental relative moldiness index. And the technology is actually similar to the GI map. It uses the same PCR DNA technology, and it gives you a spore count of, for various different species of aspergillus and penicillium and different various different mold species. I think there's about 36 mold species in total that it detects. And then it will sort of compile all those detected molds into an overall mold score. Which is called the which is called the ERMI, um, and then it will show you where you fall on the spectrum relative to other homes in the United States in terms of how moldy your house is. Um, then from that point, if your house is moldy, that's kind of a whole nother can of worms because then you're looking at having an inspection. You need to have someone come in and help you identify the source of the mold, and then from that point, you need someone to help you do some remediation. Or if you're renting, you, you actually might be in a better situation because you can most likely have potential grounds to break the lease and get out of there, right? Um, mold is no joke. I can tell you that firsthand. Um, it was making me, uh, my partner and I both uh, extremely sick and extremely fatigued for for many years. I mean, there, there were, I can't count how many weekends where I was just laying in bed doing nothing just because I just could barely move a muscle. Mm. Yeah. Um, I have some questions and I actually, I'm going to jump to one that relates to mold. This is from Sarah. She said, I've been dealing with major brain fog for years, but all of my thyroid numbers are in normal ranges. She puts that in quotation. So we've, we've already kind of talked about that. She said, I also have mold toxicity and I'm on a protocol and elimination diet for some other dysbiosis and candida. Would this protocol also likely eradicate any mold? I've been on a protocol for four, the protocol for 14 days, very little improvement in brain fog. So once you have mold toxicity, what do you do to get rid of it in, in your body? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the, the first and most important thing to consider here is that if you are taking binders and you're on a liver support protocol and you're working on eradicating the fungal and yeast and mold overgrowth with, with herbal antimicrobials and, and so on, if you're still living in a moldy house and you're taking all those supplements, it's kind of like trying to put out, I'll give you another uh, colorful analogy, it's kind of like trying to put out a house fire with a garden hose. So, it, so or, or, you know, I've heard another analogy with living in a moldy house. It's like you're taking binders and supplements and you're doing an elimination diet, but you have your entire mouth around the exhaust pipe of a car, right? So, and, and it's, uh, it can really be that serious, you know, as funny as that sounds, the thing is with mold is in most cases, you can't see it because the, the spores are, 
the spores and mycotoxins can be smaller than like 0.3 microns, right? So you're living with this kind of invisible toxin in your house. But the, the, the fact is, I mean, if you saw that your house was on fire, you, would, you wouldn't be trying to take supplements to try to help you to deal with all the, the, the damage from the fire, right? Um, so there's really no, um, I kind of draw a hard line there and I realize that's hard to stomach because people have very, uh, emotional attachments to their home. And that, that can be one of the most difficult aspects of, of talking someone through this, but there, you're really just giving yourself expensive pee if you're taking a bunch of supplements and you haven't done mold testing in the home and have identified the source and done remediation. Um, so that's that's number one priority, right, is, is removing yourself from the source is, is prerequisite to healing from mold illness. So that's what I might suspect if the protocols aren't working. That being said, uh, you know, I'm not sure what, what she's on, so it's really hard for me to comment exactly on, on um, the efficacy of the protocol she's on. Uh, but generally, kind of just in broadly speaking, you know, you have to, you have to make sure that you're addressing the yeast and fungal overgrowth. And, and again, my go-to for that is running an oat test. But then also looking at a mycotoxin profile to look at things like okra toxin A and, and, um, and aflatoxin and some of these other mycotoxins Right, you have to address them from both perspectives. You have to you have to kill off the mold in your body, and you have to get rid of the mycotoxins. And that can be tricky because the mycotoxins they're they're so small that they can cross the blood-brain barrier, and that's why brain fog and fatigue are so common with being affected by mold, because you actually have a buildup of toxins in your brain. So often use things like alpha lipoic acid which is an antioxidant that can cross the blood-brain barrier and and binders like zeolite that again you know they can kind of go in and cross the blood-brain barrier and act like a magnet or a chelator to kind of pull out the the toxins from the brain so if you're just taking activated charcoal or bentonite clay or some of these other binders um, they might be catching some of the toxins in the gut but not necessarily addressing them at the cellular level or at the brain tissue level. Okay, this is from Eleanor. She said, I did an AIP diet when I was first diagnosed with Hashimoto's. Felt fantastic as a result, but commentators are starting to warn against AIP. What are the alternatives? This is a lot to unpack, but I just kind of <laughs> give us your, because I saw, you know, you're trained in a the AIP um, diet. What What are your thoughts around the AIP diet when you get a diagnosis of or diagnosis of um, an autoimmune condition? So I was lucky enough back in February to do a three-part video interview series with Angie Alt of Autoimmune Wellness. And they're about 30 or 40 minutes each. And we directly address this topic really, really in depth. So what you'll want to do is go over to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the mindful nutrivore and check out those videos. In the meantime, I'll give you a quick and dirty uh, explanation of what we talked about, which was dispelling what I consider to be some of the myths around AIP. And one of those myths is that 
the AIP diet can cause eating disorders and it can result in, in a loss of oral tolerance and, and these these kind of things are sort of interrelated. But the, the fear or concern around AIP is, and, and admittedly, I, I do see this a lot, where someone will go on an elimination diet and they will stay there for too long. And in doing so, they can actually do more harm to their, their gut than good, especially when they're limiting... You know, you'll often see people on an AIP, AIP diet kind of um, experiencing an increasing world of res- food restrictions, right? So you'll see someone that's only eating beef and sweet potatoes and maybe some arugula, like for every meal, right? The problem is, if you're not getting enough diversity in your diet and you're not feeding your microbiome with lots of plant foods and, and prebiotic substrate, then you are going to be... Uh, you're going to be, be doing damage more or less to, to your microbiome and you're going to be limiting the microbial diversity in your gut as a result. And that can result in, in downstream inflammation and leaky gut and so on. So, you know, what you were originally trying to heal might actually be exacerbating the problem. Just kind of seems like um, kind of a catch-22. But the, the common mistake I see people making is that they, uh, and to kind of get to the point, is that people are staying on that elimination phase for way too long. I, I've seen people come to me after having been on the elimination phase for, for about a year. Um, and when really you're, you're not supposed to be doing it for more than a couple months at most, and and then you are so so AIP is not is not a diet it's a protocol and that's where people get this wrong and where they trip up right um, so they think that for the rest of time in order to heal their autoimmune condition they're supposed to cut out nightshades and guar gum and and stevia and all these other things right um, of course there's a much and nuts and seeds there's a long list of things but. In reality, a lot of those foods may be beneficial for your system, and you could be depriving yourself of these otherwise nutrient-dense foods. But I do see people getting kind of like afraid that um, if you reintroduce like almonds or something or eggs, that it's going to set back their clock of progress like all the way back to zero, which is, again, that's just not true. It doesn't work like that. Yes, you can have an unsuccessful reintroduction with eggs or tomatoes or almonds or, and so on. Um, and you might have a bit of a flare-up. You might get a migraine. You might, you might have some uh, abdominal bloating. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you, your progress has all been lost, right? Um, so just to kind of recap, you know, the, the AIP diet is, is really meant to be a short-term elimination where you're trying to arrive at the the basically kind of like a a, a food sensitivity test for yourself, right? Uh, and you're trying to arrive at the foods that work best for your system, and then as quickly as possible start reintroducing as much diversity back into your diet as you can. Um, and you know, and yes, if you're not doing that, then then it can be harmful. But I think it's when AIP is misunderstood that that it can be harmful to your system. But um, it can also be 
a really tr- when wielded properly a, a really useful and beneficial healing tool. I hope that hope that answers the question. Totally, I, that that was a great summary. Thank you for putting putting that. You gave us the short and dirty, and that was perfect. Um, this is sort of a follow up question to that. This is from um, Chapters of Erica. She says, "Are there any studies that have been done on how diet can effectively reverse Hashimoto's thyroiditis? If so, what levels were measured, and how did they improve?" I've seen studies that have shown a reduction in inflammation in people with HT, with diet, but no effect on TSH, T3, T4, and TPO. Yeah, so in that same interview I did with Angie Alt, we also covered the results of her AIP study on Hashimoto's that she paired up to do with Dr. Rob Abbott. So if you Google autoimmune wellness and uh, Hashimoto's study, then you'll, you'll be able to find a summary of those results. And I found them to be super encouraging Now, to be fair, it was a really small cohort of about 16 participants, and I think that there needs to be still more research done. But in in their research, they did find that that a small handful of individuals, I think about a little more than a third, were, were able to lower their thyroid medication because their TSH came down. And that was using no other interventions other than an autoimmune paleo or autoimmune protocol diet. And then a small individuals did see a reduction in, in, in antibodies. And then one, one really neat finding from that too was that for the overall study group, they were able to res- reduce on average their high sensitive high sensitivity C reactive protein, which is a marker. It's HSCRP, and it's um it's an inflammatory marker, just kind of a general inflammatory marker. Um, and the participants in the ten week study were able to see the CRP come down by thirty percent. And that, again, that was only in 10 weeks too, right? So you have to wonder what kind of results might have been seen after three months or six months or even a year, right? So I, w- I would love to see more done on this. Um, so no, there haven't been a ton of studies done um, aside from that one AIP study with Dr. Rob Abbott. But I can tell you, uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, you know, we, we don't want to, lack of evidence is not necessarily proof against, right? So just from firsthand experience and anecdotally, I've seen dozens of my clients be able to reduce their thyroid antibodies completely, to be able to get off thyroid medication, and more importantly, to this kind of is getting into a totally different point here. But um, thyroid antibodies, I got to tell you guys, it's uh, it's not everything, and I think people get hung up on that. But you can see symptoms resolve long before your thyroid antibodies start to come down. Um, and, and, and from my perspective, I, I would, I'd be happy to take that as a major win. If I, if I was able to go back to living a normal life and, and have my symptoms stop interfering with my day-to-day ability to function, and I still had some residual thyroid antibodies, I, w- I wouldn't sweat it, right? Um, thyroid antibodies are everything. They're certainly one indicator of progress, but um, symptom progress, um, subjectively speaking, I think is much more important. 
Um, okay, I have a, just a few more quick questions. This is from Christy. She says, does the thyroid affect female hormones and do female f- hormones affect the thyroid? Just maybe we can talk about the connection there um, just quickly. And then also, if you've been on thyroid meds for many years, is it possible to reactivate your thyroid and get off your meds? I think it would depend on how much destruction there has been to your your thyroid gland. So personally, I'm still on an NDT. I'm still, I'm taking WP thyroid. And when, when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's back in 2012, my thyroglobulin antibodies were above 1,700. So in my case, I caught it very late in that progression, and there was already a lot of damage done to my thyroid. Right. And I've been able to reduce those antibodies by about 90 percent. But I I still do have some residual antibodies. I'm still on thyroid medication. And little by little, every time I measure, you know, my my own thyroid levels, you know, things continue to progress. And as as a result, I'm able to keep reducing the thyroid medication. I say that because for some people, it might be a longer road, and that's totally okay. And for some people that catch it very early on, like kind of stage one uh, progression of Hashimoto's, where maybe the TSH is only slightly elevated, and maybe the thyroid antibodies are within you know less than 50, then I think there's a much better chance that you can you can restore the body back to normal function some using some of the principles we discussed earlier, diet, lifestyle, functional lab testing, et cetera, using that kind of test, don't guess approach, um, then I think you're going to you know, be more likely to get off your thyroid hormone sooner. And I, and I have seen that. So yeah, absolutely. It just kind of depends on where you are on the journey. But having to be on thyroid medication isn't necessarily a failure, right? Um, if, you, if you're diagnosed with a thyroid condition, um, it's not your fault that that happened, but it, it is your responsibility, right? It, your health is your responsibility to take your health into your own hands and to, and to you know, do what, what needs to be done to, to assess the bigger picture and, and kind of getting back to normal health. And then her second, the second part of this question is, does thi- the thyroid affect female hormones and do female hormones affect the thyroid? So what's the relationship there? So there is an intimate connection. So if we start with progesterone, you, need, you do need adequate amounts of thyroid hormone for your ovaries to produce progesterone. And in turn, you also need progesterone to help your thyroid function. So there's kind of a reciprocal relationship there. And I often sort of kind of half-jokingly say that from a functional standpoint, like everything causes everything in the body, right? So uh, last time I checked, we're just one body, we're one organism, and we often imagine these things uh, working in isolation when in fact everything is interconnected, right? You can trace a line between estrogen and heavy metals and parasites, and like you can keep going on and on. Um, so yeah, definitely um, a, an intimate relationship there between progesterone and thyroid and vice versa. And also, uh, simil- similarly, uh, estrogen is also kind of like a Goldilocks hormone, right? We know that if we have too much estrogen, we can end up with symptoms of, of estrogen dominance and you know PMS and weight gain and, and, and anxiety and, and so forth, right? Um, so estrogen does stimulate the thyroid gland. 
Uh, on the other hand, too little estrogen, it could result in, in not enough uh, thyroid tissue, um, and while too much could result in actually an enlarged thyroid gland. Right, so um, I'll often run, and then also um, excess estrogen can also uh, block or inhibit uh, proper functioning of, of thyroid hormones. Um, so, in other words, you know your your cells may not be as receptive to metabolically speaking to your thyroid hormone if you have too much estrogen. So, a lot of these things are like very uh, need to be very fine tuned and and uh, are, are kind of fall within this kind of Goldilocks or optimal range. And for that reason, that's why I run a full thyroid panel alongside that comprehensive hormone panel that we mentioned earlier called the Dutch. And we talked about cortisol earlier, but the Dutch test does also measure progesterone. And it also measures, uh, what's, what's really powerful about the Dutch is not only does it measure estrogen, but it also looks at how estrogen is breaking down or metabolizing in your liver. And some of those liver metabolites of estrogen are more harmful than others. So that can also kind of give you insights into how well your body's detoxing because most estrogen is broken down by the liver. So all this stuff is connected, right? We're looking at the hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal, and thyroid access. We're looking, we're looking at the, the liver function. We're looking at reproductive hormones and you know um, all that stuff you know you can certainly get into the weeds right on the one hand that might seem overwhelming right like everything is interconnected and there's all these variables but at the end of the day so much of this just goes back to to poor diet and lifestyle right so you know again earlier i had mentioned that i'm always starting from a place of looking at diet and lifestyle and using the labs to kind of guide those diet and lifestyle protocols. And so, you know, we don't want to get kind of caught in this trap of thinking that if we have high estrogen that we need to treat the high estrogen, right? And and there are certainly things that we can do to help manage it and bring it down, but the more important thing to ask is why is estrogen so high to begin with, right? It is always asking this why question. Why is cortisol high? Why is estrogen high? Why is progesterone so low? And typically, the answer comes back to poor diet and lifestyle, hidden stress and inflammation, gut bugs, and toxins, right? It's actually kind of a short list. Um, easier said than done, but um, hopefully that kind of bridges the gap between looking at things from a very complex perspective to actually um, really simplifying things. Yeah, no, that that's very helpful. Um, we got I think that applies to a lot of questions that we got, which is, you know, as women, we have infradian rhythms, we have these cycles, and our hormones are kind of always changing, and a lot of things impact those hormones, and it can be confusing because obviously then that affects how, like, you know, we can we can eventually develop issues where we have irregular cycles or have issues with fertility, and there's so many things that play into that. And again, it's sometimes confusing because you said everything affects everything. So it's like, well, do I treat the thyroid or do I look at, you know, I treat my hormones? And um, I think it's helpful to get that, to get into the mindset of, well, everything affects everything and um, kind of coming at it from obviously a holistic approach, which is what we're talking about, you know, what we what we talk about, of course, here on this podcast, but really seeing it as, yeah, I let's look at root causes. Sometimes the root cause can affect, um, be impa negatively impacting everything. Um, 
And sometimes it can be impacting one thing, which then impacts another. And so it can be like a cascade. Um, and so that that's where it just gets a little tricky. But also, I think you've you've simplified it really well. I have one other quick question. We have way gone over, but we just have so many questions. And I, I so appreciate you taking this time to really go through all of this with us. Um, the last quick question is about thyroid medications. Um, levothyroxine, a lot of people are immediately put on this when they have a thyroid issue. Are there natural alternatives to taking this medication? And what should people consider when thinking about medications, um, the, the medications that they're on if they do have Hashimoto's and or hypothyroidism? Awesome question. So if you're seeing a conventional endocrinologist, typically they will put you on Synthroid or, or Levothyroxine, which is just the, the, convention, the, uh, the, um, the generic form of Synthroid, right? And so the important thing to understand here is that our thyroid produces both T4 and T3. And while the T3 is not as abundant, it's much more potent and more bioactive. So that's the form that our body uses. And we have receptors on every cell in our body for thyroid hormone, by the way, which is pretty fascinating. That, that shows you how important thyroid hormone is. And we have those receptors on every cell in our body for thyroid hormone, and that's what eventually kind of upregulates our, our metabolism and tells our body to produce energy. So the thing is that our body doesn't use that thyroid hormone until it's converted from T4 into T3. Now, Synthroid and Levothyroxine are T4-only medications, and if you're not a good converter of T4 to T3, and, and actually most of that conversion, about 80% of it happens in the liver, so your liver health is intimately connected to your thyroid function. And if you're a poor converter and you're not converting that T4 to T3, you might find yourself with a lot of the same symptoms of hypothyroidism, right? And so running free T4 and free T3 will be helpful to make sure that you're you're still converting that free T4 into free T3, right? But um, it's this is very, very common. Uh, there's lots of articles about this topic on the website Stop the Thyroid Madness. But I, like many other people, I initially, for about the first um, like nine months or so, I was on Synthroid. And at first, I felt amazing. And then after a few months, all of my symptoms kind of started creeping back in. So as an alternative to some of these uh, synthetic forms of thyroid hormone replacement, such as Synthroid, there are other options out there which uh, as a whole are referred to as NDTs or natural desiccated thyroid hormone. And that's currently uh, what I'm personally taking at the moment, a medication called WP thyroid. And these are our glandular thyroid medications that are derived from pig thyroid gland. And they contain the same exact biological ratio of T4 and T3 that our body does. So with those natural options that are derived from pig, you are also getting the T3 in there. And for myself and for millions of others uh, who don't do well on Synthroid, they find themselves feeling much better on something like NatureThroid or WP Thyroid. Uh, there, there are uh, about a half a dozen options out there that are, are pretty similar. Um, but um, you, if you're still feeling 
some of those same symptoms, you may want to consider switching from Synthroid to something um, more natural that contains the T3 in it. Very helpful. Ryan, are you still working with um, clients and are you actively taking clients or are you booked? <laughs> I do. I, okay. I, I work with clients from all over the country and I, I have the great blessing of being able to wake up every day and doing what I love, which is helping to spread this message of functional health and wellness and helping people to get back to living their best life. And my practice is 100% virtual, which is pretty cool too, because I have the ability to have all these lab kits that we talked about, like the GI map and the Dutch and the oat, and have those all sent right to your house. And you can collect those test samples and send them into the lab without ever having to leave home. Yes, we have done that. That it's just so cool now that that stuff is so accessible. It's just it's mind-boggling to me um just how much the world has changed in terms of like accessible health, um like health that's accessible to people that don't or may not live, you know, close to you or close to a functional medicine doctor in the last just even 5 years. I feel like so much has changed. Um, so where can people find more about you? And if they do want to work with you, where, um, where can people find more about that? So if listeners go to the mindful they can access my calendar and actually schedule a free complimentary 20 minute consult. If they wanted to learn more about how they can work with me and what my rates are and, and, you know, what that coaching relationship would look at, uh, look like. Uh, so that's, uh, the mindful Nutravor.com, and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll spell that out in show notes. And my social media handles all use the same name, so my Facebook and Instagram uh, also use the Mindful Nutravor. Awesome. Okay, yes, I will of course link to all of that in the show notes. Um, I'm going to definitely link to the things that we talked about as well in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Ryan. This was like very information heavy, and we got really down down into the deep muck and i appreciate you taking us there and being so clear and effective um with like you know explaining some really complicated things i, I really appreciate you it is my pleasure i could have gone all day so <laughs> i know but people have things to do we have to stop ryan i could have too um i'll have to have you back on so i'm sure in a year so many things are going to change and new and we're going to have new resources and so I'd, I'd love to have you back on so thank you let's do it yeah thank you so much all right for more from ryan we will link to everything links his resources in the show notes uh, for more from me you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com make sure to find us on Facebook we have a new Facebook group it's called Well-Fed Women Holistic Health Community you can request to join there thank you all love you mean it talk to you next week 